Thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, election is the uh, topic today. Um, controversial, but I don't think um, as far as controversial in that it is hard to understand. I don't think it's controversial in how um, much it is thoroughly laced through Scripture, and that's what we're going to look at um, today. Guest panelists uh, today, Dr. McAndrew, Dr. Um, Papa, and uh, is that what you go by mostly? Dr. Papa. Dr. Papa, and then Greg, Dr. Greg. So, um, looking forward to, to this a lot. Greg, um, Papa, would you read Ephesians um, 1, 3 through 6, and then I would like to kind of get a couple things to, to start us off as far as, and Mark, we might come to you with the John ones, but which chapters would you go to if you were going to spend some time um, getting to understand this doctrine? But if you would read and pray for us first, Papa, then we'll go at it. Father God, thank you that, that we um, are gathered together this afternoon. Uh, looks like it might be a little rainy afternoon. Uh, thank you for your common grace of rain. And uh, thank you for your word. And I'm excited about this topic. It's been a controversial one for um, 2,000 years and uh, probably not any less so the, this afternoon, but uh, it'll be fun to talk about it and, and uh, exposit it and see what your word has to say. And we pray for your spirit. We, we need your spirit to help us and enlighten us this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. The word of the Lord, uh, Ephesians uh, three, uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through, if you don't mind, Jerry, I'm going to add a couple more verses. Please. Uh, um, 3 through probably 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. Good. So Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Romans 9, places we normally go. Greg, where do you like to go uh, when you're looking at this? Um, I think incredibly important topic. Well, there's a lot of places. I don't know if I have one in particular. I mean, Ephesians is Ephesians 1, um, Romans 9, uh, Acts 13, 48 that Mark preached mm -hmm. on a few weeks ago. Um, even Romans 8 uh, deals with this. First uh, Thessalonians 1 um, mentions it as well, and there's a lot of other places. Yeah. I think, I think what you have to start dealing with when you consider the doctrine of election is first that it's actually in the Scriptures, it's not something that, um, you know, we have a, a theological agenda 
and, oh, well, let's, let's try to fit it in there and talk about it once we force it into the text. No, we deal with it because it's already there, because God is the one who has revealed this. God is the one who has revealed this truth. Um, I mean, do we want to read Grudem's definition of it so yep. we're all on the same page? And I think this is, this is as a basic definition, this is, it's, it's, a, it's a decent one. What page? This is on page 282 um, under Explanation and Scriptural Basis. Um, this is Grudem's definition of election. It is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. Um, and that's why we get the kind of the qualifier, unconditional election, meaning God did not look into us or around us and find anything there uh, to base His choice on. Um, we're going we're to unpack more of this later, but unconditional means there were no conditions in terms of ourselves that had to be met for God to choose us. There were conditions, but God did it on something else um, that we'll look at. As Grudem says, uh, His sovereign good pleasure. So, no matter where we go, that's what we have to keep in mind. Um, God chose us, and it wasn't because of anything we did, anything we said, or any quality that was in us. Good thing, too, because there wasn't anything there to, no. to choose us about. All we had was um, sin. There wasn't anything that he would... We, no, nobody would be chosen if he would have went by that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he says in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians that we were children of wrath. Exactly. Children of wrath don't have qualities that commend you to be chosen by God. If God's going to relate to you as a child of wrath, it means he's going to bring wrath upon you. That's right. Not choose you for something else. Yep. Mark? Can, can I ask you a question, Jerry? Uh, please. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> probably no answers. But. <laughs> so can you just, just to kind of give, give us a little sense of your journey on this doctrine over your yep. lifetime, can you paint a quick picture of what you kind of would have thought intuitively oh, yeah. growing up and then where you've gotten? And Just can you yeah. give us a few minutes on that? Oh, I'm thinking, well, hopefully not a few minutes, but it was... The, the first time this was presented to me, we grew up in a Mennonite church, a great place to grow up. I mean, you couldn't have had a better growing up days than I had, but I had never even heard that this was a controversy, a doctrine. I'd never even heard of it. And, uh, and so the first time I'm in Bible college and our uh, dean of men, I had him, he had me over for uh, Sunday lunch and, and I think just happened to mention it. And I thought, how can you be such a solid, great man and think such a ridiculous thing? Like, I could not believe what he was telling me, that, um, that God chose us and that we didn't choose God. I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. And so what happened, though, as it, that introduced some thinking, and then all of a sudden, passage after passage after sermon after sermon, sermons that are from Arminian guys, sermons that you wouldn't even say they weren't even trying to prove uh, predestination or election, started jumping out everywhere, and for the next now 30, uh, 30 years, just one passage after another has convinced me to where there's no place to turn. And, and Mark, you've talked about it being such a warm blanket. Well, I, I, I want to ask you that question right back to you, which yeah. is fun to do. But j just how, because when you first heard it, it sounded outrageous. Oh, yeah. Now you would say it's, 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 oh. it's one of the more precious doctrines in the Bible. How, yeah. Can you explain how you went from the one to the other? Yeah, no, I just think that it changes so much 
thinking. Like as far as evil, as a Bible teacher, all of a sudden, it's not up to me to convince the students to, that, uh, do, you know, to come to love and know Christ or to be sanctified. God's, that's God's business. God does that. All is our job is to teach the word and share the, to sow the, to throw the seed out there. And God does it. So how freeing it is. But I just think as far as uh, weeding the pride out of us to think that we somehow deserved it, that somehow we did something, or like Greg said, that we, we were a little bit better, or we were a little bit smarter, or we were um, a little bit more um, able to understand something. And so that's why I think it's a growing conviction of mine that as we talk about this, humility ought to ooze out of us in this topic. Because this is, and I don't think that always happens. I think that Reformed folks are known for being a little bit arrogant about this. And I just don't, that just can't come from all that Scripture says. If it's completely apart from us, then it's by grace, and it should really, it should really humble us. And so, no, it has become, I mean, I can't imagine, I don't think there's a doctrine that I enjoy more than this to think about and that to, as a comfort and as a, a warm blanket, like you say. If I could, it, this has, though, been a doctrine that's been contentious since the beginning. Uh, I, I access Burkhoff here, and he says that um, the church fathers really didn't deal with it much, but Augustine and Pelagius first brought it to the forefront. And then... Uh, that's close to the year of 400? Where are we 400, at? 400, 409. Okay. Precise. And, and they got into the big debate, but it was all about free will, but it also concerned uh, uh, predestination and election. And uh, Augustine was a double predestination guy, and so was Aquinas. Uh, but they, they, they later, the church later, the Catholic church later chose a middle way, which was semi-Pelagian, which said, okay, God's presence or omniscience or foreknowledge is what, that's why we get, we're elected. So mm -hmm. why does compromise. Why does double predestination, he starts out right before we, um, this, to say he's not going to use, Grudem's not going to use that. Mark, could you tell us what that might insinuate in a wrong way if we thought about that? Yeah, okay, so double, double predestination is, is, uh, uh, is tricky. So you'll find some uh, theologians who like the term, some who don't like it all from the Reformed tradition. And so, the, the, the danger that Grudem is trying to avoid, why he, I think, chooses to avoid the term, I think Sproul will use the term, I believe, in Chosen by God, he uses double predestination. It, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this. It, um, the way these two things work are very different. So, when God looks at the world, He's not looking at a bunch of neutral people. He's looking at us in our sin, in our fallen state, in our dead state. So, none of us deserve God's salvation. So, if God is to look at a fallen world, if He were to leave us all in our natural state, then the inevitable consequence would be we would perish eternally. That's the inevitable outcome or consequence if God were to leave us as we were. And you say, well, would God do that? Well, God did that for all the demons who fell. Right? When, the, when the, about a third of the angels fell with Satan, it looks like in Revelation, and that's a third means 
hundreds of millions. I mean, enormous number of, of angels fell with Satan. And God chose not to send a Savior for angels. Jesus did not become incarnate as, a, as an angel, as if you even could do that. Uh, Jesus doesn't do that. There's no way. So, God allows them all to perish. By the way, the, the angels who did not fall, this is a side point, the two-thirds or so who stayed faithful, 1 Timothy 5.21, I think it is, calls them the elect angels. So, the doctrine of election does actually play out even with angels, where God allows one-third to fall of their own choice, and He preserves two-thirds by His electing love, keeping them from falling in 1 Timothy 5. I think it's verse 20-21. And so, you even see the doctrine there in a sense. But God actively chooses to intervene and give us better than we deserve if we are saved. That is the sense of positive predestination. There is also a sense in which, therefore, He doesn't choose all, and therefore, He leaves many to stay in the state in which they choose to be and to perish of their own choice in their sin. Passively. And so, passively. And that's the difference. God actively intervenes for the believer and changes our will, gives us a new heart. That's, that's active predestination. But God, in a sense, allows Esau to go his way. You know, he, he chooses Jacob, but he allows Esau to go his way. And so, in a sense, you could call that another form of predestination, but it is not active. It is a passive form. It is allowing us to go on our own, which always leads to destruction. And for those whom he chooses to save, it is an intervention. It is a new heart. It is a transformation transformation. And so, one is active, one is passive. That's why the terminology can be tricky. Double predestination sounds like God's looking at neutral people and designing and forcing some against their will to sin and be evil and to perish. And then He's forcing some to believe. And it, th that's a caricature. So, we've got to be very careful with the terminology uh, there. That's good. Greg, why do you think there's a natural… I think there's a natural… It sure was in me. And I, I sense that it is in the students when we talk about it. Why is there kind of a natural pushback against this? What is it in us that kind of makes this doctrine just a bit abrasive, maybe? Uh, one reason, I think, is because, I mean, it just grates against our, our autonomy, our self-reliance, yeah. our, our desire to, you know, as, as they say, be the captain of our own fate yeah. and all that kind of stuff. We, we want to be the ones to make the final decision so that we can you know, claim that we did it. Mm -hmm. And um, a doctrine like this utterly humbles us into the dust because it says the only reason we did was because God first chose us and then worked in us so that we would choose Him. Um, and I mean, when you study Scripture, the more you, the more you trace these things out, I mean, for me, the more inevitable it just became. It's like, I can't get away from this. I can't... Um, I cannot deny this unless I want to deny the clear teaching of Scripture. Um, and it... When people, a lot of times, uh, I believe fellow believers who love the Lord, uh, who resist this doctrine, they can't always resist it based on the teaching of Scripture itself. They have to bring outside conclusions to the text to make the text say stuff it doesn't say so that they don't have to accept what's here. You go to Romans uh, chapter 8. Everybody, if you turn there, Romans chapter, chapter 8. Um, here's here's a, a chief example you know, we, we rightly love Romans 8, 28. We know that all things, or that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Um, following on the heels of that, though, or actually kind of giving the ground underneath that assurance um, that God's working all things for our good, um, is verse 29 when He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And we'll stop there. And the reason why I say some people, they have to import foreign categories into Scripture so that they can make it say something it doesn't say. Um, when you look at that word for no, it's very popular in philosophical categories to say, well, that just means you 
know the future in advance. You know ahead of time what's going to happen and kind of like look down the corridors of time and, and you see what, what people are going to do and therefore God makes his decision based on what he sees people are going to do. That's foreseen faith, if you will. God sees who's going to believe in him, so he chooses them. Problem is, that's a philosophical definition. It's not a biblical definition. The biblical definition of foreknow means to, in a sense, to love, to choose. You think Adam knew Eve. Um, It's an intimate relational term. It doesn't mean he just knew information about her. He entered into a relationship with her. God says to Israel, you know, you of all the peoples of the earth have I known. And again, not known about. Um, God knows about everything. His knowledge is perfect. No, it's I chose to enter into a relationship with you, to love you, and to make you my own. And so the word for no comes out of that biblical context. And in a biblical context, it had, yeah, is it true that God knows everything? Yes, he does. You can establish that from a number of places. But this word is actually more equivalent to electing and choosing. It's not the same word in the Greek, but it's, it's a very close synonym. So if God foreknows you, that means he has ahead of time decided to love you, to choose you, to make you his own, to enter into that intimate relationship with you. Um, And again, it's not based on anything he's seeing that you're doing. It's based on the fact that he said, I'm going to love you and I'm going to choose you because that's how I am. I just want to keep supporting what you're saying. In Genesis 18, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis 18 verse 19, God says of Abraham, I have most translations, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Well, the Hebrew is no. I I have known him. And most translations just translate it chosen him because they mean the same thing. And it's it's, the the closest English word uh, John Piper suggested might be the English word acknowledge, which is like if, if a student raises their hand, you say, I acknowledge you. Well, the word no is at the root word, right? I acknowledge you. So, but, but what you're really saying is I'm choosing you to speak, right? So if, if my students raise their hand, I look at a girl, I say, hey, Sarah, I acknowledge you. Then she can now talk. I've chosen her. And so similarly, the, the Hebrew here, I've chosen Abraham. In Amos, there's a famous verse that says of all the nations of the earth, the Lord says, I have only known Israel. That doesn't mean, if, if, if it just means no in your intellectually, he knows everything about every nation. Mm-hmm. He knows all about Pharaoh. He knows about the Assyrians. He knows about the Ninevites. He knows about everybody. Why would he say, I've only known one nation? Well, clearly, God chose only one nation, the nation that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, God looks at all the nations and says, I've only known, I think it's the word yada, right? The, the, Hebrew, the famous Hebrew word for no. I, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth. And you'll, you'll see a pattern throughout the Old Testament of this idea of no. Like you mentioned, Adam knew Eve and, and they, she conceived. No is a very strong commitment, love, covenant type word. And when you get into the New Testament, uh, you can see it used, for instance, 1 Peter. Uh, can we turn, I know we don't have time for this, but 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, will show you two uses here of the word that will help, I think, shed a little light on that first Peter near the back of your New Testament, chapter 1. Mark, if we can establish this, then the golden chain on Romans 8, 29 and 30, then, then that's sort of the end of any kind of argument, right? Yes. I think that's yeah, it, important. So, and let, let me say before we finish this thought, one way to make this point is to show how the word no is connected to God. So, how does, the, how does it speak about salvation in Galatians? Now that you have, Paul says to the Galatians, we just talked about last Sunday, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how does he describe salvation? It's to know God, right? It, well, 
a lot of people know things about Jesus and about God, but they're not Christians. That's not true knowledge. True knowledge of God is a saving relationship. And so Paul describes becoming a Christian as becoming known by God. So knowledge here is not just awareness. It, this is an intimate relationship. Uh, similarly, there's other, there's other texts, and I just forgot one at the top of my head, where, where, the, where the idea of knowledge comes in a similar way. But you look at 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Well, there you have verse 1, elect, verse 2, according to foreknowledge. So, foreknowledge and election are closely connected, but if you look down uh, at verse, which verse is it where Jesus shows up? I don't have it underlined. 20. 20. Thank you, Greg. If you look at verse 20, it speaks of Jesus. Verse 19, the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20, He, Jesus, was what? Foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for your sake. Does that mean God just kind of knew what Jesus was going to do of His own free choice, independent of… No, 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 no. The, the triune God was in complete chosen agreement for the plan of God, that Jesus was the chosen one. He was the chosen. He was the elect, the true elect one, who would come into the world to achieve our salvation. So, whatever Peter means by foreknow in verse 20 must be what he meant by foreknow in verse 2, because it's the same word in the same chapter. What does it mean in verse 20? God chose Jesus for a mission. What does it mean in verse 2? We are elect, chosen according to God's foreknowledge. In other words, this is God's election, His saving relationship. The other verse I just remembered is Matthew 7, when Jesus says, many of you will say, Lord, Lord, we did many mighty works in Your name. We cast out demons. We performed many miracles in Your name. And He says, I will turn to them and say what? I never, I, knew, I you. never knew you. You yes. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Does that mean Jesus had never heard their name before? He didn't know about them? Of course, Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything about them in His divinity. But He never entered into a saving relationship with them, and Jesus calls that knowing someone. So, when God knew you before you were born, like Jeremiah the prophet also, before you were born, I knew you, Jeremiah 1. Before you were born, I set you apart. To be set apart as a prophet and to be known by God before birth are synonyms in that chapter. God's choosing Jeremiah as a, for a saving mission is the same as him knowing him before he's born. And I think Paul also in Galatians 1 says similar language about he, he set me apart from my mother's womb and similar type talk. So, we've got to get a biblical definition of no from God, not a, a philosophical definition. Why do we recoil so much against this I, I uh, is just, it the autonomy, wanting to be independent? The free will thing has a lot to do with it, too. Yeah. I had a student that answered that. We were talking about it, and he definitely didn't lean toward uh, this doctrine. He would generally lean the other way and just said it, it's really uh, up to man's desire. And he just answered honestly. He said, I just think it's a pride issue. I just think, Craig, you kind of said it. It sort of hurts our pride to have to admit that I couldn't have made a good decision. And, uh, and so the total depravity, the uh, Romans 1 through 3 are so clear. I think Sproul said, after we've taught Romans 1 through 3, everybody's convinced that uh, man could not choose God. By the time you get to chapters 8 and 9, though, the students that he was talking about, he said, kind of went against it. And he said, we had to always go back to 1 through 3. It's like, hey, remember, no one seeks God. No one's righteous. All of us together have um, strayed, gone astray. And uh, Papa, when you're looking at page, I think this is a, a huge thing that we don't, and you guys have taken us to a number of passages already. What's some of your favorites from 283? We probably could go six weeks on all of these in Scripture. 
But if you're looking at the New Testament teaching, Papa, what's your favorite out of that group right there? I, I, he, he mentions a number of uh, Thessalonians verses, and I like some of these. Um, here's 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. For we know, brethren, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Back to Mark, you mentioned chosen. Uh, for, our, for our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit within and full conviction. And then Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 13. Because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. But notice there, Fred, that from what the you beginning. just read. God chose you from the beginning to be saved, not just through sanctification by the Spirit, but and through belief in the truth. So God chose you from the beginning to be saved by belief in the truth. So God is not just... That, that's the order of salvation right. working its way through that passage. Yes, and God is, God is bringing about that faith to believe even in that process. Mark, you just talked to us from this Acts 13, which is so good. You know, just that one verse is uh, very convincing. Re... Uh, kind of explained to us again why that verse is just so, the way he yeah. wrote that. Well, I, I have a, one of the premier Acts commentators today, and I actually disagree with him all the time, uh, he, he is also Arminian. He does not believe in the doctrine of predestination as we would, Craig Keener. Uh, he's, I disagree with him on all kinds of stuff. But he, he's written this like four volume, like multi-thousand page. It's the biggest commentary on Acts. And I haven't worked, I worked through his cliff note version of that commentary. But uh, e even there where he does not really believe this doctrine, he, his notes on this verse made me laugh. He said, you know, this, this verse highly stresses the sovereignty of God and salvation. That's about all he can say. But I'm like, yes, yes, it does. Now let's, let's move to the next step. It clearly demonstrates the sovereignty of God in salvation. So uh, even commentators who don't lean this way, on that verse, I, I would smile reading the Acts commentators because across the board, I think almost everybody I looked at, which was a lot of different individuals, were just talking about this is as clear as you can get. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. One commentator tries to get out of it by saying we appointed ourselves. <laughs> no, no, that is not what the verse is saying. It is obviously the divine hand. God, as many as God appointed to eternal life, responded by believing, and it's the exact same number. As many as God appointed for eternal life, that same exact number believed. And so God didn't appoint every single person there that day to believe. That was what one guy tried. This cracked me up. I watched this on YouTube. I have no life at some point. When I watched, I watched hours of Arminians on, on, on this verse on YouTube because it's a big debate verse. And so I watched it at two times speed. I couldn't waste all my time. But uh, one guy in particular said here, I think the answer is that um, God appointed everyone to believe, which just simply means that the gospel was preached. So it doesn't guarantee anyone responds. And coincidentally, 100% of the Gentiles believed. I'm going, do you, do you feel like there's mental gymnastics here to try to get around the clear meaning of the text? Like, okay, God... God God chooses everyone all the time, is his argument. And, only, and then in this random instance, everyone responded positively. First of all, everyone did not respond positively if you read the message. But clearly what happened there was God appointed certain individuals to be saved. They were the ones that believed. But not everyone was appointed because not everyone believed. You never have 100% success anywhere in the New Testament when a crowd is preached to. And that is the golden chain. Those who are foreknown or predestined. Exact same number. Those who are predestined are called the exact same number. Not nobody, not everybody, but some people, the chosen, the elect, however the word uses all kinds of, those who are called oh. are justified, and those who are justified are glorified. And we've never been that close to being glorified. That's pretty exciting to think about. But and if sorry, we were There's no way out of that. <laughs> that's right. And there's, so no one slips through the cracks. 
It doesn't go from 10 million to 9 million to 6.5 million. It doesn't go up either. It isn't be that, well, someone wasn't foreknown, but somehow they were called and they were justified. It is the exact same group in five different stages. And if you put sanctification in there, six different stages. Greg, what's your favorite out of these? I, I, and I imagine you have a hunter. You don't need to ask me my favorite. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I love them all. Um, I do want to say something, though. Like, um, you know, even folks who, who disagree with the position that we're, we're explaining, and I think is, in, you know, thoroughly biblical, um, they're inconsistent with themselves. Uh, because you get a group of people going out to share the gospel who don't believe in unconditional election. What are you going to do? Say, hey, pray for me. Well, exactly why right. are you going to pray for the gospel to succeed when it's ultimately not up to God who's saved? I mean, God does his best, but ultimately if the decision lies with the individual, mm-hmm. then why are the, the individual. I heard Al Mohler say this. is like, we don't tell people good luck. <clears throat> you know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Why pray if God's not the one who saves? I mean, honestly think that. What are we asking God to do if God's not the one who saves? Um, Just on that point, that's a great point, Greg. If God cannot actually make salvation happen, He can just woo and coax, but He can't actually make it happen, then what is actually ultimately steering the ship is fate. In other words, there is a God above God. There there, there is this this unknown, uncontrollable force called fate that is actually calling the shots, and God just sort of knows what's going to happen and has to submit to what He knows. Does that sound like biblical teaching? No, God is the one who is actually sovereign over what's happening. So, sorry, I, I cut you off. No, that's fine. I mean, you're right. Absolutely. And I mean, again, are we more committed to our pre-commitments than we are to the authority of Scripture? Yeah. You know, this issue, I think, for me, um, really tests how submissive are we going to be to the Bible? Yeah. Like, we'll submit when it says the things we want it to say, but when the Bible cuts across the grain of what we hold dear, and it's clear that it does, and we, the only way we can get around it, as you said, do mental gymnastics, um, are we going to submit to Scripture and let Scripture be Scripture, or are we going to submit to something else? This will test whether or not we really believe that God's Word is the authority. And if it is, then, you know, initially, sometimes we have to say, all right, I might not get all of this. I might not even like it all. But I can't deny that that's what Scripture teaches, and I would rather be a little perturbed by the Bible and accept it than to deny it. That's good. Um, I mean, let's just go there yeah. and say that. Papa. You know, one of the things, back to the Ephesians verses that we read, you know, God has, could have done this anyway. He wanted to. But he's, picked a, he's, just, he's explaining his plan, his purpose, his will in those verses. And... and, and and he's giving us a glimpse. And he's telling us why he's doing this. For his glory. And, and he's for, talking about forgiveness of sins. And to unite all things in him. And redemption through his blood. And uh, he predestined for adoption in love. I mean, he's giving us, you know, help after help after help as to why I'm doing this. And he's explaining it in very con- concise terms. Uh, it, it's, it's, that's the gospel. Yep, that's so good. On page, uh, there, he gives three reasons. How does the New Testament present the teaching of election? And as a comfort, as a reason to praise God. And I want to come back to number two in a second. But Mark, you're coming to this passage in Acts that you've loved about Paul's guarantee that there will be some sex success for evangelism. Because a, con, uh, a common known, um, I guess, uh, debate can happen 
with this is to say, well, why do I evangelize? If God's choosing, if he chose before the beginning of time, then it, it's kind of in the primitive Baptist group. There's some groups that kind of lean this way as to say, well, we really don't have to evangelize. Tell us why. I love that he put this in here as an encouragement to evangelism, and it's only a paragraph there. But what is Paul, you're coming to it in what chapter, what you Acts? 18, I think yeah. comes up. Chapter 18. Yeah, so, okay. I want to make clear, it's not just the people who believe in predestination who have the same so-called problem here. Everyone has the same problem, they just don't always realize they have the same problem. So, let's just ask this question. Let's say that you don't believe in unconditional election, you just believe that um, God knows the future and everything's based just on Him knowing the future. Okay, if that's true, then before time begin, just from the knowing perspective, okay, I, I don't think it's the right definition of no, but let's just say just all, all God knows is the future, that's all everything's based on. If that is true, okay, then did God know before He created anything? the exact names and numbers of everyone who would believe and be saved? Yeah, if he yeah. knows the future, he knows exactly. Does he also know exactly who will, will fail to believe the gospel and perish? Yes. Yeah, so even from a non-predestined standpoint, if you believe God, if you believe in God at all, he knows the future, right? So, if God, then from the beginning, before time began, every name was already written in the book of life that would be saved anyway, so why evangelize? And you can ask the same question the other direction. It doesn't matter what position you take on predestination. You have yeah. the same problem, which is that the final number of who will be saved is fixed before, before Genesis 1. Exactly who's going to be saved will be fixed, no matter whether you're whatever belief. It, God already knew for sure. So then why evangelize? Same problem. So the, the answer is, first of all, don't you want to, first of all, obey what God commands you to do? Right. That's the, the first answer is God commands us to evangelize the Great Commission. Therefore, it is a sin to disobey God. So number one is, Children don't always understand why their parents ask them to clean up the living room, okay? Like, I can testify. But th there is a reason. There is a reason that the child may not understand. So, number one, God commands it. Dad says, I got to do it. I got to do it. That's enough for me. That should be number one, okay? I mean, that should just silence. That should be the end of the whole conversation. That should be the number two, you, we get to be a part, an active real means, a real means, not an illusion. We are a real means by using our mouths to speak truth to others. We can be a real means of salvation for those we love. We can be a real means. So, just like uh, God may ordain, uh, well, God ordains all things that come to pass. God ordains, like I said before, a, a nail to be in a two-by-four, but normally the way He gets it there is not through a miracle, but through a worker who picks up a hammer and puts it there. So, in other words, we, we don't want to leave means out of God's sovereign plan. God doesn't work by magic. He works through means, and the means are real. So, you sharing the gospel with your children, you praying for your children's salvation, and doing that over a long period of time does not guarantee that there will be the fruit you want. But when it does come to pass in gracious ways, know that you as a parent were a real massive means of the salvation of your child. So, it's not as though what you did didn't matter, and God just sort of did it hocus-pocus apart from you. No, God works through our mouths, through our words, through letters, through emails, through text messages, through phone calls. He works through us to accomplish His ends. And so, the final results are up to Him, but we can be a real part of what God is doing in the world. It's kind of like take your kid to work day. Uh, you know, we might make a mess out of a lot of what's going on, but we can really, God can really use us, uh, and, and we can have the joy of being part of those things. And Paul is excited to go get them. There's some of them are out there that are elect, right? Tell us about that passage. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's Paul's yeah, I mean, Paul, Paul says in Acts 18, God, Jesus says to Paul that there are many people in the city of Corinth who are my people, and so Paul stays for 18 months and sees them come to know Christ. The, yeah. the God's sovereignty encouraged his evangelism when he was discouraged. And he didn't know who they were, right. but he knew they were out there, and that's us too. We don't know, so we share the gospel with everybody. 
because they don't have a little E on their back that says whether they're elect <laughs> or not. We just know that they're people, and God elects people. So we go get them. And God has not called us to try to figure out who nope. the elect right. are. Right. Like that is one of the biggest things we have because that's often a caricature of what we're saying, yeah, right. um, which leads to what you said, like, you know, primitive Baptists not really believing the gospel. That's called hyper-Calvinism. And it's not just that people are super excited about Calvinism. What it means is, um, is you are only required to repent and believe um, if you know that you're elect. And the pastor has to try to discern who the elect are, and he should only call the people he thinks God is drawing, that, that God has chosen to, to repentance and faith, and he shouldn't call other people to. And the Bible clearly tells us that we are to call everyone indiscriminately to repentance That's and right. to faith. Um, again, because only God knows whom he has chosen, we don't. And we are nowhere tasked with trying to get inside the mind of God and the choice of God and say, well, I'm going to preach the gospel to you, but not to you. Because I think right. you're probably right. more elect than I don't think you are. That God has not even opened that door to us. It's not even something we should even try to, to pry into. Our right. job is to call everyone that we meet to believe in Jesus. And we know because God has chosen, as we preach, the Holy Spirit will work and he will awaken faith and he will bring repentance among God's chosen. But the only way we know somebody has been elect is if they believe in the gospel right. and they give credible, a credible profession and a credible demonstration that they are trusting in Christ. It's not our job to try to peer into their soul and figure out, well, you know, you might be showing that, that you're believing, but I'm not sure you're elect. That, that's just ridiculous. Well, the Bible didn't even go there. I completely agree. And an example of just to show the absurdity of that view is imagine being at the crucifixion of Jesus and looking at the two thieves on either side of him. This is within a few hours of all their deaths. Mm -hmm. When you first arrive at the crucifixion scene, they've been on the cross for maybe 30 minutes, and both thieves are cursing Jesus' name, right? That's what the gospel tells us. They're both cursing and blaspheming him. What are the chances those, either of those guys is elect from your perspective? Zero percent chance yeah, from yeah, my perspective. Sure. I'm like, these guys have lived their whole life in complete rebellion against God. They're murderers. They're thieves. They're in, they're in, a, they're in a, a revolution against Rome. They're dying the death they deserve to die for insurrection. Here they are on the cross. Okay, like, they got a couple hours to live. Ain't no way either of these guys is saved. And then what happens? All of a sudden, one thief is believing and dies a few moments later. He was elect before the foundation of the world. But if you try to discern that ahead of time based on his previous life, you will get it wrong. We will all get it wrong. We can't know. All the gospel he had was, the, was what was written above Jesus' head. Here's the king of the Jews. And what came out of Jesus' gracious mouth in that moment, praying for the forgiveness of his enemies, that's all he had to go on. And he, somehow by the Holy Spirit, he put the pieces together. And after cursing Jesus, then repents and believes. That's great, Papa. I think Spurgeon uh, also said, I've used this before, I believe, but if God had painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he didn't, I much must preach whosoever will. And when whatsoever believes, I know he's one of the elect. That's good. Yep. Leave it to Spurgeon for a good quote on that Absolutely. one, right? That's great. Um, let's say someone has uh, an objection, and this would be hyper-Calvinism again, I think to say, ah, I really don't have to do anything. If God's uh, elected me, if I was chosen before the beginning of time, then he'll get me. I'm just going to go on my merry way. Where does man's responsibility, how do we not neglect all the passages on believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved? How does that fit in? Greg, you know this kind of stuff. Um, well, I mean, one, going back to what Mark said earlier, God commands us to, to preach the gospel. 
Um, God commands us to preach the gospel to every creature. We are to withhold it from no one. Um, the other thing, too, I mean, and, and this is a consideration. I get this from Jonathan Edwards, and I'm probably going to butcher it. But um, in considering this whole issue, like of election, um, and, you know, if God's the one who chooses, then what, you know, what about our responsibility? You have to think every human being is a sinner against God. What that means is every human being owes God repentance and faith. Like so what we owe him for our sin is to at the very least say, God, I was wrong and you were right. I shouldn't have done this. I deserve whatever you, you have coming my way. Like before the gospel even comes, a human being by virtue of being a sinful image bearer of God owes repentance to God. And so when we go, like we, we are obligated to tell people as God's image bearers, guess what? You have sinned against your creator. And so like people need to know that. They can't believe if they don't know that. Um, and again, yeah, God chooses. But you even go back to um, Ephesians chapter 1. Um, what's interesting, you know, well, God, God's the one who chose people will say, so, you know, I don't have to worry about it. But again, what, what does uh, Paul say? It's Ephesians 1 um, verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So you had to hear the gospel and then believe the gospel. This is the same Paul who in verse 4 said, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, Paul's not contradicting himself. He's not introducing an inconsistency. He's merely showing, yes, God is the one who ultimately made the first choice. But in how God works things out, we still, have, as far as our own perspective in this, we have to repent and believe. And I mean, some people will say, well, I'm not sure if I'm elect. Well, that's not what God calls you to figure out. God calls you to acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you deserve his judgment, but he's offered to you in Christ a way of escape and salvation if you will believe it. We're not, again, when preaching to, the, preaching to people, we, we must help them. If, if this comes up, it's not like, well, you got to figure out if you're elect. Just like we're not supposed to try to figure out who's elect and who we preach to. If you're hearing the gospel, you are not to try to figure out, well, I don't know if I'm elect. So I might, I really want to believe, but I don't know if I'm elect. So God won't save me. That's not how the Bible does it. The Bible says, if you will acknowledge you're a sinner and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. Jesus, John chapter six. I know we're running out of time. But what does he say? No, listen, listen, it's John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him um, and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone who is, anyone has seen the father except he was from God. He has seen the father. And this truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Yes, God chooses, God draws but the impetus on your response is not trying to figure out if God has chosen you or if God is drawing you. It's, do you believe? Do you believe? That's where this meets, where the rubber meets the road, where this, to use a, a phrase in the right way, where it intersects with us is not, do we figure out whether or not we're elect, but do I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior? And if the answer is yes, if you can acknowledge that, then you can be saved. There you, you go. And you've got Romans. all the words of assurance right in that passage. You've got sealed, you've got promised, you've got a guarantee of our inheritance. Um, and so we don't yeah. need to be pondering that. No, that's great. Let me, let me go real quick. Uh, yeah, go this, is, this is where I was going to. It's John 6, um, 30, 37. It says, all that the Father gives me, that's election, will come to me. There's assurance there. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's and so, so that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, don't try to figure out if you've been given to, to the Son by the Father. 
do you know you need to come to Jesus and do you want to? And if the answer is yes, then come because he said he won't cast you away. Yeah, and if anyone needs Jesus, listen to Romans 10, just adding to what Greg has just said, Romans 10, 10, and ironically, right after Romans 9, that talks so much about God's sovereignty and election, listen to this. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, beginning, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Listen to 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Like Mark said the other day, the Lord is wooing folks to himself. He's calling them to himself with a general call to say, come. And then with an effectual call, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. Mark, help us um, with one last thing before we pray. Any, like, final thoughts for those who need a Savior? Yeah, I mean… Gospel bullets. The, the, uh, just real quick, so the, a farmer has no control… Of, a farmer cannot use his will to make a seed sprout, right? A farmer could not… He could sit there all day long trying to will it, and it's not going to… You can't control that. Does that mean a farmer should do nothing to bring about a crop? No. A farmer has all kinds of responsibilities. Now, any storm could take out his whole crop right? Anything, God is sovereign over the final results. Does that mean you sit around and do nothing all year? No, you better not. You're going to be a poor farmer. You, you go out there and what do you do? You plow the field up. You get the soil ready. You plant the seed all across the field. Then what do you, you, you upkeep, you water and fertilize, whatever you have to do. And you work around the clock for months. And then if God so chooses, your seeds sprout, your crop grows, a storm doesn't wipe them out. At the end of the day, you can reap a harvest. So th there is a wonderful compliment there. And com like every day, we have everyday reasons to think, okay, we have responsibilities. God is ultimately sovereign, but God's ultimate sovereignty doesn't destroy our responsibility. It creates the very reason we've got to do things. And so d don't think of them as enemies, but as, as friends. That's great. Mark, would you pray for us? Yes. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, these uh, weighty and, and significant truths in Scripture. Uh, just for all of us, as we might be at different spots as we're working through these things, maybe for some this might be newer, for some this might be older truths, uh, I pray that you would help us to continue to uh, grapple with Scripture and to study Scripture intensively and to pray over our Bibles and to really search out what Scripture teaches, not to take someone else's word for it, but to take your word for it. And uh, I pray that you would use a careful investigation of your word uh, to confirm us in the truth of what you teach, that ultimately uh, our salvation is owing entirely to you and your sovereign goodness in our life. And I pray that would create worship, that would create joy, that would create security, that would create adoration, and, and all the kinds of things that the gospel should create in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go one more week on election because we didn't get to uh, nearly all the objections. So uh, one more week next week. And if you didn't get a chance to read it, um, it is a great chapter in Grudem. Please uh, get a white book and, uh, and read that for next week. Thank you.